Hi, I'm Eric Voss and Dark Phoenix as what will probably be the final entry in this Fox Marvel iteration of the X-Men before Marvel Studios inevitably reboots the franchise. And as a film that struggled with repeated delays and reshoots due to accidental similarities to Captain Marvel was far from the disaster that reviews would have you believe. Now sure, it's a little weird to see a movie with so many people rolling over unconscious, both on screen and in the audience. But hey, I enjoyed this X-Men movie a lot more than I thought I would. And it actually has a number of interesting hidden details and connections to the comics that I want to break down for you. Spoiler warning if you haven't seen it yet, and let's get started. Okay, in the movie's opening titles, the 20th Century Fox logo features its X emblazoned with Phoenixy fire, which lingers a few frames longer as it fades to black, which is actually a little tradition that the editors have worked into the past X-Men films. Over black, the voice of Jean Grey narrates the theme of this movie, this whole question of whether you're stuck as the person that you've always been, or whether you can change from that. Echoing the theses that Charles Xavier would open many past X-Men films with. A flashback to 1975 shows Jean Grey as a girl in the back seat with her parents. The music here is Jimmy Webb's By the Time I Get to Phoenix. And young Jean tries to change the radio station, reflecting her resistance to getting to Phoenix. Jean Grey is an Omega-level mutant with psychic abilities that far exceed those of Professor X. And here, as a girl, her powers become too overwhelming and she causes the car accident that kills her mother. Now, there's some confusion here over whether it was the Phoenix Force that causes overload or just her own super-powerful telepathic and telekinetic abilities. And there has been some question over when in the X-Men timeline that Jean acquired this Phoenix power. Because, yeah, in X-Men Apocalypse, which was set in the 80s when Jean was a teenager, she did use what looked like the Phoenix Force to defeat Apocalypse. In the X-Men comics, there's actually some precedence of the Phoenix Force actually first encountering Jean when she was a girl, kind of imprinting on her but laying dormant, and then rediscovering her later as an adult on the space mission from the Dark Phoenix Saga, when Phoenix and Jean Grey fully fuse with each other. So yeah, this story was adapted from Chris Claremont's famous Dark Phoenix Saga in the 80s in the X-Men comics, an arc that this movie's director, Simon Kinberg, attempted to adapt 13 years ago when he was co-writer on X-Men The Last Stand, but studio executives downplayed Jean Grey's story in favor of the mutant cure vaccine storyline and the whole war with Magneto's mutant brotherhood. See, back in 2006, Hollywood executives didn't really trust that fans would actually go pay to see movies about themes and storylines that they already loved in the comics. But anyway, Charles recruits Jean to join his school for the gifted, telling her that he can fix her and she's not broken, which he does by creating walls in her mind to block out the trauma of the car accident and block out the memory of her father abandoning her out of fear. In this way, Dark Phoenix casts Charles in a morally ambiguous light that some of the comics have done, questioning Charles Xavier's choices to turn scared kids into commandos and public superheroes. So we jump ahead to 1992, the present year of this story, and the year that the X-Men characters went mainstream with X-Men the Animated Series. There is a crisis with NASA's space shuttle Endeavor. So like First Class did with the Cuban Missile Crisis, and Days of Future Past did with Richard Nixon, this X-Men movie is using real history as a backdrop for its story, kind of telling an alternate history. Like, Space Shuttle Endeavor didn't explode. I just saw it here in LA. Or I thought I did. What are they hiding? So Charles deploys the X-Men, which in this movie include Hank McCoy, Beast, Nicholas Holt, Raven, Mystique, Jennifer Lawrence, and Peter Maximoff, Quicksilver, Evan Peters, who, after being one of the best things about the last two X-Men movies, sadly gets about as much screen time as he did in that cameo in Deadpool 2. There's also the noobs who were introduced in X-Men Apocalypse, Scott Summers, Cyclops, Ty Sheridan, Jean Grey, Sophie Turner, Kurt Wagner, Nightcrawler, Cody Smith-McPhee, and Aurora Monroe, Storm, Alexandra Shipp. The X-Men wear these new simplified 
costumes that seem to be drawn from the Frank Quietly designs from the new X-Men by Grant Morrison. They're also a bit similar to director Matthew Vaughn's X-Men First Class costumes, really just embracing the classic blue and yellow color scheme. Raven actually calls this out to Charles later on, suggesting this simplicity was intentional as part of Charles' PR branding strategy for the team, as opposed to just like random blue jumpsuits or random black leather costumes. The X-Jet takes off from under the basketball court, and they included the same shot of the rolling basketball that we saw from the Jets' takeoff in the first X-Men movie. The X-Men save the astronauts, but Jean absorbs the cosmic nebulous Phoenix Force, which helps her survive in space. And when she lands on the surface, it starts to feel real good. Kind of like Kane and Alien feeling real good eating noodles, but whoa, whoa, wait! Evil alien force inside him. Bad news. Gene and Scott go to this bonfire party with a few cameos of other X-Men characters. Lighting the fire is Match, Ben Hamill, played by Lamar Johnson. They also arrive via portal, suggesting that Blink is hanging out. There's also Dazzler singing and making pretties, played by Houston Sage. Dazzler is actually introduced during the Dark Phoenix saga as a disco queen superhero who they want to spin off with their own movies. Meanwhile, the villains of this movie arrive, the alien race of the Dabari. Now, the Dabari were also from the Dark Phoenix comics as a race that got annihilated when Dark Phoenix flew off into space to recharge and feasted on a star, destroying the Dabari solar system, leaving only a few survivors. Later in this movie, it's mentioned that these Dabari are the few survivors of this race, suggesting that the Phoenix Force could have done this to their people in the movie universe as well sometime in the past. And now the Dabari are hoping to gain the weapon of the Phoenix Force to restart their culture on Earth. These aliens are discovered at a dinner party where Jessica Chastain actually plays a human party host who goes to check on her barking dog named Luna. Luna could be a reference to Luna Maximoff from the comics, who's the daughter of Quicksilver and Crystal, the first child born of a mutant and an inhuman. Now these Dabari are shapeshifters, suggesting that maybe in an earlier version of this movie they might have actually been scrolls or Super Scrolls. Scrolls are a Marvel property of shapeshifters. We saw them in Captain Marvel. Super Scrolls, though, at the time of shooting this movie, were still a Fox Marvel property, since they're more commonly associated with the Fantastic Four. Now, the cast of this movie recently hinted that the studio had to reshoot huge portions of Dark Phoenix due to some accidental similarities with another superhero movie. It's probably Captain Marvel, since Captain Marvel featured the shapeshifting scroll race. And Jessica Chastain said that her character was changed so much that in reshoots, she never really knew who she was playing. Oops! The leader of the Dabari takes on Chastain appearance and is named Vuk. Vuk is a character from the Marvel comics, also known as Starhammer, who used human disguises to sneak around and used his technology to turn Avengers into stone. He was later actually revealed as the last surviving Dabari due to being off-world when Phoenix ate their star. During Charles Xavier's speech at the White House, Chris Claremont actually makes a cameo. He was the writer of the Dark Phoenix comics, and really it's good they included him because he was among those most responsible for keeping the whole X-Men popular in the 80s, really turning them into the household name that they are today. Jean goes to look for her father in Red Hook, New York, which is a town that actually came up in the X-Men universe before, like in the FX series Legion, which is co-produced by Dark Phoenix director Simon Kimberg. In the pilot episode, it featured the discovery of David Holler, who, like Jean, is an Omega-level mutant, and the head of Division 3 mentioned a Red Hook incident. After what happened in Red Hook, I'd say that's an understatement. In the background of this town, there's a truck with the logo Bishop Power, a nod to Bishop, the human who can absorb energy and release it from his body. He's a constant conductor of radiation and electricity. The X-Men try to stop Jean, but she takes them all out one by one, including 
fatally Raven. She impales Raven on these three spikes, and there's actually an interesting detail in Raven's death here. But before I continue, thanks to Rise of the Kings for sponsoring this episode. Rise of the Kings is a war strategy mobile game set in the Middle Ages, but with fantasy elements. So if you're just a Sophie Turner fan, you saw her in Game of Thrones, but wish it ended differently, here's your chance to show how dragons and castles should play out. In the same way that Jean Grey says it feels good to go in rage mode as Phoenix, it feels pretty sweet to use a dragon and burn the Lich and Rise of the Kings. Yeah, it feels a bit different when you're the one doing the burning, doesn't it? Rise of the Kings features a bunch of hero options with varying stats, styles, and features with beautifully done artwork. Now, building up the heroes involves the formation of troops and promotion of attributes, but on looks alone, I gotta hand it to Asher High. Now that is fierce. You can also experience what it's like when your castle is being attacked, play defense with your own intricate defense strategy. Rise of the Kings has global servers so you can compete with players from all over the world. You can also set up your own alliance, chat with friends from around the globe, and get to waging war together. So what are you waiting for? Download Rise of the Kings now using our download link in the description below. You can also get a free gift pack with our unique code in the description. We are the real Brady, Brady Bros. Brady Brothers from the TV show Brady Bunch. I'm Barry Williams. And I'm Christopher Knight. I played Greg. And uh, who were you again? I played Peter. We've decided that we're going to do a podcast around episodes of the Brady Bunch. We're going to use it as a prism to look back to our experience doing the show and why the Brady Bunch is still popular. Have a sunshine day. We are the real Brady, Brady Bros. Okay, back to Mystique's death. It actually brings her full circle with the original Mystique's fake death from Wolverine's claws in the first X-Men. Three spikes cutting through her midsection. And speaking of Wolverine, this emotional death echoes the death of Logan, who also bled out after being impaled. I guess this is the one way we can uh, horribly kill X-Men characters. After Barry and Raven, Hank and Charles duke it out, grieving in the kitchen, Charles recalls this location as the place where he met Raven, a callback to the scene in X-Men First Class. Actually, earlier, Charles and Raven even realized that they were the last of the first class, reminding us of other first class members like Alex Summers slash Havoc, who died in Apocalypse, and Sean Cassidy slash Banshee, who was revealed in Days of Future Past to have been captured and experimented on. It also reminds us how weird it was that Nicholas Holt, Jennifer Lawrence, James McAvoy, and Michael Fassbender were all in Cuba in 1962, but look more or less exactly the same 30 years later. And I guess eight years from now, they're gonna age into Kelsey Grammer, Rebecca Romaine, Patrick Stewart, and Ian McKellen. I know, it's confusing, but Feige's on it. Jean Grey finds Eric Lyncher, Magneto, on his mutant island colony. And in the credits, one of those guards is listed as Genosha Sentry. So this colony is indeed Genosha. In the comics, Magneto established Genosha as an all-mutant nation of his own to command. And notice that all the structures here are metallic. There's shipping crates, a hull of a boat. Remember, in X-Men Apocalypse, Magneto nearly destroyed the planet by unearthing all the metal in the soil in the cities. We saw shipping crates like these flying off of boats and then hulls being dragged off the ocean floor. Maybe Magneto did the same thing to build Genosha here. Joining Magneto's team in this movie are mutant Selene, played by Coda Eberhardt. In the comics, she's a member of the Hellfire Club in a super powerful telepath, but in this movie, she gets abruptly yanked out of a train door. Sure. There's also a new character, not from the comics, Ariki, played by Andrew Stalin. We thought he was going to be Red Lotus in this movie, but here he appears to use his braids as whips and lassos. Sure. Gene f 
walks up an army helicopter, and Eric says, get! So she meets Vuk, who explains to her that the Phoenix Force inside Jean is the spark that ignited the universe with godlike abilities to destroy and create. Hank tells Magneto that Jean killed Raven, and Eric tearfully retrieves his old Magneto helmet, which he keeps in a locker where a newspaper is barely visible. That headline reads, news cameras capture White House. This is from Magneto and Raven's attack on the White House in X-Men Days of Future Past. Now, the moment Magneto puts on his helmet, the editors cut directly to Charles taking off his Cerebro helmet, and Charles takes Scott, Storm, and Nightcrawler to confront Magneto, Hank, and Selene, and Ariki as they try to kill Jean in Vuk's mansion, but it doesn't work. Magneto almost gets his eyes poked out. Jean humiliates Charles by dragging his body up the stairs. Very unsettling. And Jean and Vuk hug it out, with the Phoenix Force spreading somewhat into Vuk. Now this whole idea of sharing the Phoenix Force among multiple superheroes might have come from the Avengers vs. X-Men comics, when Iron Man blasted Phoenix Force with the Disruptor, fracturing it into five pieces that possess Cyclops, Emma Frost, Colossus, Magic, and Namor, turning them into the Phoenix Five that rule the Earth for a brief period of time. The X-Men get taken by the MCU. <laughs> I saw what you did there. In this case, the mutant containment unit who takes them into captivity via train with each of them in these mutant inhibitor collars similar to the ones from Deadpool 2. And this whole train sequence is really the most fun part of the film. And it was actually the main sequence that was added in reshoots for the movie. Originally, Dark Phoenix's finale didn't have this. It was going to be set in space as Phoenix blows up a bunch of alien ships. But yeah, that's essentially what happened in the final act of Captain Marvel. So they reconfigured this battle to be on the train where, sure, it's not totally clear who the Dabari villains are, what they can do, like some guns can kill them, but others can't. But hey, at least we get to see Magneto be Magneto again, crushing a train car around a bunch of Dabari and tossing it like a crumbled soda can. Apparently the reshoots also included a redesign of Jean Grey's Phoenix Force energy, which was going to be fiery, lapping around her body, like the traditional design for the character. But since since Captain Marvel's binary energy looked super fiery too, they changed it here so that the Phoenix Force looks like fiery veins spreading from under her skin. Sure. Also, they removed my favorite clip from the trailer when Scott and Charles scream big boy voices at each other. Tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. And I don't know why you cut it. Jean kills the rest of the Dabari and takes Vuk to space tells her to go Vuk herself, and leaves the X-Men. In the movie's epilogue, they renamed Charles' school to Jean Grey School for the gifted youngsters. A nod to the comics, where Wolverine renames it the Jean Grey School for Higher Learning. And we see that Charles has retired to Paris, where Eric Lyncher finds him and talks him into another game of chess. A nod to the long-running tradition between these two characters, seen in the ending of the first X-Men, and more recently in Days of Future Past. And actually, the name of this cafe is Café Le Vue Copain, translating to, I never took French, so shut up about my pronunciation. Also, Cafe of Old Friends. And as Phoenix appears flying in the distance over their heads, similar to Phoenix's tease of her return at the end of X2, Jean's voiceover returns, saying, this is not the end of me or the X-Men, this is a new beginning. A reminder that, whatever we feel about the X-Men right now, a new beginning is in the works. Thanks to Fix It Feige. Comment down below with your thoughts on Dark Phoenix. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at EA Boss and subscribe to New Rockstars for breakdowns of everything you love. Thank you for joining me and what do you think we should do with all this time until Feige brings back the X-Men? I don't know what to do! Ugh, sorry I asked.